So this is a Presbyterian church for sure. Um, would you join me in a word of prayer before I read Second Chronicles? Lord, uh, open our ears and open our hearts that we may not just hear the words, but really listen, receive your words. That as you have given us this gift and this revelation, this inspired writing, guided by your Holy Spirit, that this is for transformation of our lives and this world. Uh, so humbly we receive, and may we respond to it in the way that you guide us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for being here in the midst of us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 20, and I'll be reading from verse 1 through 21, actually. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Maonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. When Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord and with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the valley, end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. 
tomorrow. Go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out in the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we look at the Bible, uh, it's always the case with a God who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. That what we see in our life and what we see in this episode is just a simple glimpse of something happening in larger context. When we pan back, that God is always doing something. Uh, you know, this is not part of the sermon, but I was thinking the story of Joseph, how he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And, you know, we usually in America, we pray against hardship. We say, God, protect us from hardship. But I think God uses hardship as a gift to soften Joseph, who was this, really, he was an arrogant, uh, selfish. Uh, he knew he was a favorite one, and he was used by God to soften his heart so that as he would change and mature through this hardship, God could actually use him to deliver his people and save the world. And so when we look at the incident, we think, oh, how terrible he was falsely accused. Life is hard. But when you pan back, you see an upper story of God that our life in 2023 or now, we don't know, do we, that this hardship or this particular episode could be part of a bigger picture that God is always doing. And so we know that Romans 8, 28, we know that in this message today that we can't see beyond. And today's story, Jehoshaphat is a king of Judah. And just to set the stage, Israel after Saul, David, and Solomon, the three great kings, was divided because of rebellion. And then Israel was north. And Judah was south. I remember that from seminary because I comes before J. I, J, Israel, Judah. That's how I passed seminary. The silly things. And Judah is, is full of good kings. Israel, every king was bad. And when the Bible says this king was good, what the writers are, writers are saying is this king devoted himself and his people to God. It doesn't mean there were perfect. It means that they were devoted to God. He was a good king. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was 25 years old when he became, 35 years old when he became king, and he served as a king for 25 years. He almost did everything right, except at the very end, he started getting in cahoots with the northern king, evil king, one of the worst kings in the north, King Ahab. And he mingled with them, and he got himself into trouble. But overall, Jehoshaphat was a good king. And in today's story, we see one lower story episode. He gets a report that you have not only one, not only two, 
but you have three nations rising up against you to take down Judah. Because Jehoshaphat was such a good king, Judah became this powerhouse. And all the enemies wanted to take it down. And he could handle one. Maybe two. But three nations, he wept. He cried. And what does a good king do? What does a good king who devotes himself to God do? Go on Facebook and say, my life is miserable. Everyone look at me. Look at my life stinks. I need more you know, affirmation and acclamation. No. He goes straight to God and cries and weeps. And so he goes before the Lord. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set his face to the Lord, verse 3, and then he proclaimed a fast through all Judah. So it wasn't just him. He says, we're going to take this to the Lord. And so in his prayer, he recounts, God, you are the God who promised us this land. You're the one. You saw what we did. We came into this land. We didn't destroy everybody. Now look what they're doing to us. They're trying to get rid of us. He recounts God's faithfulness in the midst of all the past hardships. He recounts God's promises. And he recounts this, that at the end of the day, evil will be judged by whom? By God. You're the God who will bring judgment to evil. And so Jehoshaphat's most powerful line is actually verse 12. And this is subjectively me. Verse 12, if you read it, has three parts. And this was actually uh, just a side note. Uh, today I'm giving like two sermons. You get two for the price of one. Uh, because as I was digging in, I was like, oh my goodness, this is such an exciting text. And I, I pray that it blesses you. Um, but, the, but this part, Jehoshaphat in verse 12 says three things. He says, first, we are powerless against this great horde. Wow. Like, I don't think I hear that in America these days. Like, we are powerless against this. Because what we hear in this day and age is, you got the power. You got to rise up. Get your act together. Tell the world who, what you're about. And I, I think we have this message that if your life is not the way it is, you're, you're not stepping up. But I, if you read the great heroes of the Bible, the best things they do is, I surrender, God. I can't do this. I, I can't get water blindfolded, walking around the sanctuary. I am helpless. Second thing he says is, we do not know what to do. Now, I am that stereotypical dad. When you get lost, what do you do? Honey, we should ask for it. No. We got iPhone. We got Google. We got GPS. I've been here. I could do it back in my mind, and we're lost for an hour. That actually happened early on in my marriage. And then and they're like, okay, okay, let's ask for help. Oh, it was right around the corner. Anyway, something like that. B but there's something humble about Jehoshaphat here. I confess, I do not know what to do. The great, great leaders are not the ones who tell people, I know everything. The great leaders are those who are saying, I don't understand this, but we can learn and explore and even fail together but we do not know what to do. And as we look at our lives, it's okay to confess to God, I do not know. How many of you became moms because you figured out parenting before you had a child? How many of you got into marriage knowing that marriage, you have the secret to it and you'll figure it out, and just after you mastered it, you got married? 
We do this. We don't know what to do. But because we have a God who is faithful, we don't know God. But if our eyes are on you and you lead us, we will go, which is the third part of his prayer. We don't know. We don't have the power. But nevertheless, however, our eyes are on you. Man, how refreshing this is to us that we don't have to have it figured out. That teenagers, adults, retirees, you are not alone in thinking this world is a mess and we can't figure it out because that's the beginning of prayer. That's the beginning of talking and engaging God and saying, Lord, if not for you, what do we have? And so prayer is not asking God like a genie what we need. It's, it's relationship, walking, connecting, wrestling, and even being lost, but knowing our hand is being led by God. And so Jehoshaphat's prayer is powerful. The way it looks for us in a practical sense is when my eyes are on you, it means I am in prayer. I am in gratitude. I am seeking the word of God. I am in praise, and I will worship even in the face of fear. Or I would say, as, as Pastor Jerry said, especially in the face of fear, I will worship. So this is why we come to church on Sundays. You don't come to church to get points. Here's why I want to go. I, I, need, I need other believers, when I see them worship, when I see their faithfulness, and we worship God together, oh, it's so good. I am reminded God is the center of this life, not me. So this is what it means to have our eyes on God. And Jehoshaphat's prayer in verse 12 is simply that. And so the crazy, beautiful part is, as they do this, God responds by sending a Holy Spirit upon Jehaziel, who stands up and says, I want to testify. That's, that's, a, that's the modern version. And he says, God says, this is not your battle. You need only to be still. God will fight for you. It's already won. And just don't be afraid. And so they respond in more worship. You know, by the way, like sometimes if, if worship is a burden, like, oh, I have to go to church, we do not have a view of God, a big God. God is your little toy. Oh, I have to worship God. But if God is big, you can't wait for Sunday. Never, no, you can't wait for every morning you wake up and you say, God, I worship you with my life. And this is what Jehoshaphat is leading his people to do as they are worshiping him. And so God's ways are far above our ways. If you read on, do you know how God solved this mess? This is the brilliance of God. So we have, we have the Moabites. Uh, we, have, we have the Mount, people from Mount Seir. We have Edom. And the way God resolves this in verse 22 and 23, they go out there, and who's leading this army? Chariots, spears, cannons? No, the praise team. <laughs> the praise team is leading the military and as they go out there, they discover every single one of these three hordes are dead. Do you know how they died? 
it's very poetic. God allowed them to start rising up against one another. So these three nations attacking Judah ended up fighting one another, and they destroyed each other to the very end. Judah was delivered. It's a miracle. In fact, it's like such a, such a huge theology that everyone against God in the end, God doesn't destroy them. It's that usually the enemies end up destroying ourselves or one another. And so God's trying to deliver us from that. And so this is God. He is faithful. We do not have the power in ourselves, nor do we know what to do. But God does, so our eyes are on you. So, so the takeaway here simply is this, in a very lower level way is, you don't know what 2024 is going to bring. Right now, your life may be a place where you can't figure things out. You're in a good spot. You heard that right. If your life is stressful, you don't know what to do, you're in a good spot because you have eyes to see God. This is an opportunity to say, our God, my eyes are on you. Um, I share this a lot. Whenever I my mom and I talk, my dad and I, you know, we call each other two times a week. And my mom, every single time, you know what she asked me? Because she's a pastor's kid. Her father was a pastor in Korea in the 1940s. And she always says, did you eat? Are the kids healthy? Every single time, the third thing she says is, are you praying? You can't do this without prayer. I guess, Ma. <laughs> Did you eat? Are your kids healthy? She doesn't care about me. Are your kids healthy? And are you praying? Why? She wants my eyes to not be on myself. She says, this is a hard call. You can't do this. Only by prayer. And she's right. So the battle I have is to remember to be in prayer, not to do things. But it's not true for all of us. The battle you have is not to fight the enemies, but it's to be in prayer. Amen? And so our eyes are on God. And so I want to pan back, though. Like, that sermon would have been so short right there, but this is where the second sermon comes in. And I only preach here once every two years, so it's okay. My, my old church people, though, you may not like it. But here's the second part. So when you pan back, something cool is happening here. Uh, Second Chronicles is after First Chronicles. See, I go to seminary for that. But it, originally, it's one book. But it was so big, they had to chop it up. But here's the thing. If you read the Bible... You probably read from Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You're reading and you're like, oh, I love the Bible. And then you always get stuck on Leviticus. <laughs> or you read 1 Samuel, you're like, David's awesome. 1 and 2 Kings, you're like, oh, Solomon. Oh, Jehoshaphat. You know, this, these are great. And then you get into Chronicles, and some of you have noticed this. It's the same book as Samuel and Kings. You're like, what? Why, why would, God, you need an editor. Why, why are you, I'm trying to read the Bible. I'm trying to, why are you repeating what I just read? But when you pan back, Chronicles is actually very different from Samuel and Kings. 
for one, it has about 50% of what Samuel and Kings has. But it's missing a lot of things. For example, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's not in Chronicles. Another thing missing is not one king of the north is mentioned in Chronicles. Do you know why? They were all bad. So the writer of Chronicles said, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the good kings. And so what is the Chronicles writer leading to? What's he trying to get at? And he's, what, what scholars have observed was this. Samuel and Kings, for Samuel, first and second Kings, tells the readers how Israel got into this mess of the exile. They were evil, rebellious, idolatrous. But Chronicles, his emphasis is this. God is faithful. And the royal line of David will continue on. And the way you lead is through worship. So if you read Chronicles, you know who the heroes of Chronicles are? It's not the kings. It's the priests. The priests are the heroes. So even today, Jehaziel was a priest. He's the one that steps up and says, I have a word from God. He has given us victory. Later on, one of the bad things about Jehoshaphat, this is like uh, all, all my children drama. You know, this is like, so Jehoshaphat, his son marries King Ahab's daughter, which is bad. His, so Jehoshaphat's son doesn't follow him. The reason that's bad is Jehoshaphat's son kills everyone else so he could have the royal lineage. He almost succeeds, but then he dies, and then his wife, Ahab's daughter, wants to take charge. Well, she has everyone killed that's in the royal line except for one. And guess who saved this one blood of David? A priest. I think it's Joash. So the highlight of Chronicles is this. We have got ourselves into a mess. That's Samuel and Kings. Chronicles is highlighting God is going to deliver us. Because here's the last piece of the puzzle. Samuel and Kings was written right after the exile. Chronicles was written after they returned from the exile. And if you read Chronicles, if you want to fall asleep, I, I shouldn't say that about it. But uh, yeah, I'll say this. It's a fact. The first nine chapters of Chronicles is nothing but genealogy. Imagine that. Nine chapters of genealogy. You know, you know, we have, what, what do we, you have that service where you could pay and find your root, who your ancestors are? What, is it, what do they call it? I don't know. So, something like, yeah. Nine chapters of it. What is the Chronicles writer saying? For us, it's boring, but he's saying this. And this is where I'm kind of bringing it down. And this comes from David Pawson, a pastor who passed away from England. He says, there are three R's that I want to share with you. Why would he put a lineage like that? Number one, roots. Remember your roots. The people reading Chronicles never saw Jerusalem. They were in exile. They never worshipped in a temple. So the writer of Chronicles is saying, you I need to tell you who your background is. 
So he gives nine from Adam, all the way back to Adam, to now. He wants them to know your roots. You're not random people. You're not just a population that popped up. You have a root. You are God's people. But here's the second thing. And I love, Jerry like highlighted this. The second R is, you are royalty. You're not just rooted people, but you are a royal people. You are a lineage of kings that God has established in this world. Don't forget that. You are royalty that God has established for his sovereign reason. And so the last R is this. It's for the purpose of religion. You were made to worship. So the Chronicles writer, even Jehoshaphat's story, is panning back and saying, who is Israel? Who is Judah? We are rooted in a connection to Abraham. We are a royal lineage that God has established with him as the king. And that we were made for worship. Now, here's where it gets exciting. What does that have to do with you and me today? Is anyone thinking that right now? You're like, that's great. There's lasagna waiting. Um, The story of the Jews for Judah is relevant to us because of Jesus Christ. Now, look at Jesus. What is Jesus Christ's root? He is from the line of David. He is rooted in God's people. Mary and Joseph were both from this lineage. What is Jesus' title? He is king, the royalty. He is the royal one. I mean, we are subjects. We are in a kingdom. He is the king. And Jesus says something crazy about religion. Where does worship happen with Jesus? He says, I have come to receive worship. Uh, they, when he said this, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? It will rise up again. He is the object of worship. And so what happens is, when we enter into this chronicle story through Jesus Christ, look what happens. This is so exciting. You are grafted into the roots of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And is this not what Paul says in Romans eleven seventeen? 17? They needed to know they were royal people and they had a king to restore the kingdom of Israel. They are more than a group of misfits. They are royal people who will become a kingdom again. And so we Gentiles have become grafted into the roots, into the royalty through Jesus Christ. The last part is this. When you become a Christian, Ephesians 1.13 says what? We have been sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. Worship of God can happen anywhere you are. Worship, we are free to worship God in any way we can. We have become freed by Christ to be true worshipers of the Holy One. All of this comes to this point. In 2024, we don't know where we're going. But what this message as we pan back is, what is God trying to say to us? That song that we sang, I am who you say I am. You are not a random people. You have a root. You have a purpose. You were created by a God who loves us 
and who has called us back through Jesus Christ. You are not just even Christians. You are royalty. You are co-heirs with Christ, and we will reign with Christ, with him as the head forever. And so how do we face 2024? Worship. If there's nothing you do right in 2024, if the jobs don't work out, school doesn't work out, or health doesn't work out, uh, that sounds a little pessimistic. The one thing that you can always do and are called to do is be worshipers. Humbly recognize God. But I have a feeling, based on Jehoshaphat, when we are worshipers and God leads us, God will take you where you need to go. That God has a place for you in his story, in his omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent ways to lead us in 2024 that only God knows, that he may receive the glory and we may be the blesser that could receive his incredible grace. Amen? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I believe it because I don't know enough and I don't have the power enough. But here's one thing I can do. We could keep our eyes on you. Let's pray. Lord God, gather your people. And Lord, help us to measure our worth, measure our success differently from the world. God, you are the provider of all. You are the giver of all. And Lord, so we will take whatever you provide and give. We will work hard. We will live well. We want to be faithful. We want to be diligent. And at the same time, we want to ensure that you are the center and the God of our lives, who has a purpose and a plan. And so, Lord God, we're not praying that 2024 will be smooth sailing. No. We're praying that no matter what comes our way, in the joy, we'll have gratitude. In the hardship, we will have worship. That in all things, though, that our eyes will remain fixed on you. In prayer, in scripture, in reading your word, meditating, in communing together. So God, let the hordes come as they may be. But if we are your people in Christ, Lord, we will not fear, for you are here. We pray in our Lord's most holy name. Amen.